my son calls this my emotional support water bottle. And I forgot it last night, and I panicked a little bit until <laughs> I left it in my room. Not today. All right, final session. And this is where I hope we sort of connect all of the dots for how we, living where we are and when we are, enjoy and experience God's presence. We have traced the way that God has expressed his presence throughout redemptive history. And now, what does that mean for us in our present suffering, in the trials that we experience? We're going to look in the session at how we enjoy God's presence now, what that means for our endurance and suffering, and what his presence will mean for our eternity. So we've walked through the big meta-narrative of Scripture, and to reduce that, this is the way we teach it to our kids at church, we have creation, fall, those things happen in Genesis 1 through 3, then you have um, redemption, that's when Jesus came, and then you have restoration, which is when Jesus will return and set up the new heavens and the new earth, throw Satan into the fiery pit, all of those crazy stories that we read in Revelation. The end of the story has been written, and we know how it ends, but we are living in that place between redemption and restoration, and we are certain to experience trials of many kinds because we live in a fallen, broken world. So what do we do? Well, we left off in the story of Scripture. You, know, you have Paul and the apostles sharing the gospel, making the gospel known to the world. And they believed that they were living in the last days. And I think they were. And I think we're still living in the last days because we are living in that time where we are waiting for Jesus to keep his promise to return. He told the disciples that he was going to leave, but he wouldn't leave them as orphans and he wouldn't leave them alone. And he sent the Holy Spirit to live with them until he comes and keeps his promise, which is what we're looking forward to, of his return. Until then, we as Christians are called to, like the disciples, make more disciples of all people of every nation to teach them to obey the commands of Jesus and to walk with him. How do we, living where we are now, with the Holy Spirit living in us, and it might, you might hear me say, well, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Well, that's great. I don't really know what that means. So, like, does that mean that, like, are there times where I should be able to feel him or hear him? Or what does that actually mean? I think we like the thought that the, the Spirit lives in us, but maybe we feel like in order to really, really enjoy him, we have to sort of set the stage. So we need to, like, light some candles and dim the lighting and play the right music until we feel something. But the thing is, is that our emotions and our feelings are very fickle, and they ebb and flow with whatever our life circumstances are. What it means to experience God's presence for us is, number one, to believe by faith, to live by faith, that he is keeping his promise to be with you. That's the first thing. We just have to believe that he is keeping his promise. We're not always going to feel like he's with us, and that is where it is important that we walk by faith and not by sight, or walk by faith and not by feeling. Because you're going to have days where you feel like the Lord is very far from you. And that is when you must fight your feelings with what Scripture teaches us is true. That he is with us, that he never leaves, and that he never forsakes. How do we enjoy God's presence as an expression of his steadfast love for us? I believe that we enjoy his presence in a couple of specific ways. Number one, we experience his presence through Scripture. God's word is his revelation of himself. It is how he wants us to know him. He has given us his word, Holy Spirit inspired through men who wrote it down for us, and God has preserved it for us so that we can, number one, know who he is, know who we are, 
know what the gospel of Jesus is, know how to be rescued from our slavery to sin, how to be healed from what sin has done to our hearts. We have this in God's word, and there is no way to enjoy knowing who God is apart from scripture. Show me a Christian flourishing in faithfulness to Jesus apart from scripture, that person does not exist. You cannot grow in your, in your knowledge of the Lord and in your confidence of his love for you apart from his revealed word. I believe that his word is without error and it is applicable to, still today to us. And it is written to us so that we know how to live as people who belong to him. His word teaches us, corrects us, rebukes us, trains us in righteousness so that we are equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3. To hear God speak is to open his word and read it. Every day that you open up your Bible and say, Lord, I want to hear from you, and you read, and you ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand, that is God speaking to you. He speaks to us through his word. This is one of the primary ways that we are going to experience his presence. And I got to tell you, all those years of opening up and asking, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And filling up stacks of notebooks with the answers, those are the, thing, those are the years spent with my face buried in this book that convinced me God was with me, convinced me that he was good, convinced me that he would never leave me alone in my suffering, convinced me that he would recycle my suffering for his good purposes in my life somehow and to his glory. We cannot know the Lord and experience his presence apart from his word. There's a passage in John. It's John 15. It's going to be a really familiar passage to you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he uses this word picture of a vineyard to describe what it means to live closely to him. And this is John 15:1. You can turn if you want, or you can just listen. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So he's saying a couple of things here. He's saying to flourish as a Christian, to endure and to persevere, you have to remain attached to the vine, who is Jesus. And he uses that word abide, which you could also just means to live in, to remain close to, to stay. So he's saying, stay in me, stay in my love, stay in my words. And the things that happen when you do that is that you bear fruit 
proving that you are, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. Fruitfulness is proof of life in Christ. It's not something you do in order to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus. It is something that happens once you do follow Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus, you will bear fruit. That is what he's saying. And he's saying you can't do that apart from him. And he says, I love this verse in uh, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so as God the Father has loved Jesus the Son, so have I loved you. I mean, that is perfect, beautiful love. And so he says, stay in my love. And the way that you do that is to keep his commandments. And it is staying in his word, his commandments. He says, remain in my words and my words in you. This is how you will be certain of his love for you. This is how you will be certain that he is with you. This is what will uphold you when life falls apart, being rooted connected, attached to the vine. That is what will uphold you and keep you close to him. So we read the word not to check a box, not to say, oh, I've kept up with my Bible reading plan. I'm such a good Christian. And we read God's word to stay alive. We read God's word so that we don't wither up and die. We read God's word because it is life for us. I mean, he t- describes his word in Deuteronomy as no empty word, but your very life. And when it is in you and in your heart and in your mouth and in your mind, it transforms the way that you live. When you watch someone who is very committed to Jesus and you watch them go through a difficult trial and come out the other side even stronger in their faith, it is not because they in and of themselves are strong. It is because they have held on to God's word and they know that he is holding, holding on to them. It is staying in the word that reminds them that God is faithful and true and will carry them. So we enjoy God's presence through the word. Second, we enjoy God's presence through prayer. This is one of those things that, it, that Jesus made available to us at the cross. I mean, again, like, unlike the habits of the people of God in the Old Testament, we don't have to go through a priest to atone for our sins, to approach God. We can pray anytime, anywhere, because as Hebrew 10 tells us, Jesus has opened up access to the Father through himself, through his body. Him dying on the cross gave us free access, and he is both the sacrifice for our sins and our great high priest. He lives to intercede for us. If you read Hebrews 6 and 7, if you want to know where Jesus is right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. If you ever get discouraged, I just want you to say this to yourself. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. And if, if God has purposes for my life, and Jesus is praying for me, and the Holy Spirit lives in me, what do I have to fear? The Lord will accomplish his good works in my life. He will do it. So prayer is how we are going to enjoy God's presence just by continual conversation. If I were just to distill prayer down to the most basic definition, it is an ongoing conversation with God. And I think there should be two ways that we pray. I mean, there's lots of different ways to pray, but two sort of ways to think about prayer. I think prayer should be for us an ongoing throughout the day, and if you're like me and you don't sleep very much, throughout the night, conversation with God, where we are casting our cares on him, the things that come to mind that worry us or make us afraid or concerned or we're not sure how to work out this problem. We're just 
constantly saying that to the Lord, bringing it to his attention, not because he doesn't know about it, but because we need to be reminded that he knows all about it. And when we speak those things to him, we are entrusting him with our lives. So I think we should have, if you want to call them like emergency prayers, like prayers that you just ongoing talking to the Lord throughout the day. Because what we have, what Jesus has given us is a friendship with God. And we can talk to him at any time, at any place, at any point. I also think that we should have a daily time where we have intentional prayer. A time where, and this probably is going to go along with your Bible reading, where you do nothing but pray where you sit before the Lord, and this is increasingly difficult in a world where we're always scrolling, you know? We're, always, we're never bored because we always have something to look at and scroll. It is difficult to still your mind before the Lord and to sit quietly and to pray. It becomes, the older I get, the harder it gets. But there is nothing that brings more peace than sitting before the Lord, confessing my sin to him, asking him to help me to walk in obedience, taking the things that I'm concerned about or the people in my life, praying for my family and my lost friends and my, my neighbors and people in my church who I know are suffering, bringing those names before the Lord and entrusting them into his care. Prayer is a command. You see it in scripture over and over. I mean, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. That's a difficult commandment to keep, but I think we do that through bringing our, turning our thoughts to the Lord in prayer. I mean, almost taking your thought life is just ongoing conversation with the Lord. So I think we should have that ongoing conversation, and we should have specially set times to sit before the Lord. And if you're sitting and you're like, I don't even know how to organize my thoughts into a prayer, I'm not even sure what to say to the Lord, this is where, again, God's word is a gift to us and how we experience his presence. You can open up to the Psalms, and there are 150 prayers you can pray to him. Because God has given us the language of lament, of thanksgiving, of praise. Whatever human emotion you can sort of feel, the Psalms help us voice those things to God. They also help us when we're not sure what to do or how to pray about a situation. They help us to turn our hearts to be resolved that the Lord will be faithful to us no matter what. So if you don't know what to pray, start with the Psalms and go from there. So we have God's word. We have prayer. Those are our first two ways to enjoy his presence. The third way, and this is where I'm going to spend a little bit of time, is through the church. Think about this for a second. If every believer in Jesus has the Spirit living in them, then it stands to reason that one of the primary ways we will enjoy God's presence is when the people of God are gathered together. Because though the Spirit is with us at all times, there is something special about the gathering of the saints. To worship, to proclaim God's word, to hear it preached, to pray it, to sing it, to encourage one another, to pray with and for one another. There is something about God's people gathering together where the Holy Spirit that lives in you testifies to the Holy Spirit that lives in me. And you have almost a special form or a more manifest Type of experience of God's presence. And that is why the ordinary gathering on Sunday mornings of the local church is a beautiful and sacred thing. Because this is when the people of God are together to proclaim every week that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. To remind ourselves of our hope, of what keeps us walking one foot in front of the other until we see Jesus face to face. The Christian life 
is forward facing because it is very easy to sort of get mired down in where we live in the details of our daily lives. But if you notice, the New Testament writers, whenever they talk about perseverance, there's a lot of talk about looking forward to what is ahead because our hope is what is to come. I'm going to go there more in a minute, but they also speak to what keeps us secure in the meantime. And they talk about the people of God and they describe Um, the people of God with a couple of different metaphors sprinkled throughout the New Testament, thinking primarily of Peter and Paul writing. First, they give us this metaphor. We are a family. Jesus has made us what we call co-heirs, which means he, everything that God has, he's given to Jesus, Jesus the Son, and Jesus, in dying for us, and making us new creatures in Christ, we are grafted into the family of God. We are now children of God. And we are, this is like spiritual adoption, we are given all the rights and privileges of a natural-born child. When my first son was born and we finalized his adoption, we went to court, and I'll never forget it, Isaiah was um, six months old at the time, this little round, chubby baby, and we're sitting in the courtroom, and the judge says, and he has a stand, and we have to make these oaths, and he says to us, and you know, we're, we're this couple who had years and years of infertility, so this feels like so weighty that the law is going to decree into law that this is our child. And he says to us, it shall be from this day forward as if this child were born to you and every inheritance that you have and I'm like I'm sorry son we're in ministry it won't be much every inheritance that you have will be his all the rights and privileges of a natural born child belong to him from this day forward spiritual adoption is like that except it's even better because it's not a man-made law God has made you a daughter And back in those days, only males inherited, but we are co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs of the grace of life. And so that means that Jesus is our brother. He is our Lord, but he is also our brother. And that means that we are sisters, and if we had any men here, they would be our brothers in Christ. We are family, and we need all the members of the family in order to function well together. We are children of God. God has made us family. The other metaphor that's used is a body. And you see this specifically in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We are bodies where each part of the body is necessary. And Paul talks about some parts are used for honorable things and some parts are used for dishonorable things. And every part of the body is needed. And Christ is the head. He is the one who is in charge, controlling everything. And all of the parts are needed. And then Paul goes on to talk about the gifts that he has then, that God, the Holy Spirit, has then given to each Christian. Every believer has gifts from the Spirit that need to be used to edify and exhort and comfort the church. That is the purpose of those gifts, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The other metaphor we're given is a building, a spiritual house for the Lord to dwell. And we are described as stones built upon each other to form a house, and Christ is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. So if you take those three metaphors, the family, the body, and the building, if you remove parts from them, they struggle to function correctly. And those parts, when they are removed, if you sever an arm, the arm can't live without the body. 
If you um, remove a family member from a family, they feel that loss. You feel the loss of that person. If you remove stones from a building, it starts to crumble. Every believer is needed as a part of the local church. This was God's idea because he knew that we did not need to walk through this life alone. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and then we have the body of believers in Jesus together with the Holy Spirit living in them to help us walk in faithfulness to Jesus, to endure suffering, to endure trials from this day until the day that we see him face to face. Our enjoyment of God's presence is deepened when we see and relate to one another in the church. I see this. I mean, having gone through many, many difficult years of ministry, the Lord has seen fit to keep us in our church. We're now there going on 19 years. And he has changed and reshaped our body of believers. And what we have is we're a small church. We have this faithful group of people who love Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when I walk into our sanctuary on Sunday mornings, and I look around and I see people who stayed and people who have held on to Christ, not us, but have held on to Jesus in spite of our flaws and things that my husband and I have not done well in ministry, I am so thankful. There, there is something that God has done to knit us together through our mutual suffering as a church and through our individual suffering as just believers living in this, in this world. I feel knitted to them, and I miss them when I'm not there. And I need that weekly gathering to remind me that, number one, I am not alone. And number two, that there is a lot of us, there are a lot of us who are trying to walk through suffering to follow Jesus. And the Lord will carry us, and he will often do that through the church. I lead a Bible study every Tuesday at my house from some women from my church. And there is this sweet lady who has started coming, maybe last summer she started coming, got saved later in life started coming to church, started coming to Bible study, and she's so hungry. She comes with like a list of questions every Tuesday. She's never studied the Bible. Like her first foray into Bible study is the book of Acts with us. And I'm sure she's like, what is going on? <laughs> but she is so hungry. She encourages me so much. And she, she was telling us recently that there was, she has this lifelong friend that she's been friends with since she was a little girl. And uh, her friend is not a Christian, and now my friend is, is a Christian. And she said she was talking to her friend about going to church, and her friend kind of gave her a hard time, like, how bored are you if you're going to church on Sundays? And my friend is like, no, I really enjoy it. You know, I've, I'm, I've, God has saved me, and my life is different. And she said the more they talk, the more out of step she begins to feel with that friend. And she said, and I thought this was such a beautiful thing to say for someone who's a brand-new Christian, she said, I know this is going to sound weird because I've only known y'all like six months but I feel like I have more in common with you than someone who's known me my whole life. And I said, sister, you are 100% right. Because what unites you and me, who have only known each other for six months, is Jesus Christ. And there is no other relationship on this earth that can have a more unifying and more sure foundation than Jesus. Feeling out of step with the world is normal because this world is not our home. It is not. We are looking forward to what is ahead. And that is something that um, the New Testament writers encourage us to hold fast, to remain faithful, to walk in faithfulness to Jesus because he will return for us. But in the meantime, what do we do with our suffering? So I've talked a lot about my physical illness. So a couple of years ago, I think it was 
2021. Well, the end of 2020, we're in those pandemic years where it's like a big blur. It's hard for me to remember the dates. But I remember in 2020, end of the year, I got very sick with an infection in my stomach. It was really pleasant. I don't recommend it. And I had to go on these massive doses of antibiotics. I mean, more than I've ever had in my life. The problem is, and having finally gotten a diagnosis, I have a multiple autoimmune diseases, and they do not play well with antibiotics. But I had to have the antibiotics, or the infection would have killed me. So I took all these antibiotics, which triggered just an incredible raging flare-up of my autoimmune diseases. That was end of 2020, go all through 2021, miserably sick, so much pain. And by the end of 2021, I was in a position, sort of like that night years ago, where I could not walk. I was, I had just turned 40, and I was having trouble standing up straight and walking across my living room floor. And it was really demoralizing because I don't like to ask for help. I am one of those very type A, self-sufficient people. I don't need anybody to help me. I hate group projects because I can do it better than all of you. It is such a terrible character flaw to be like that. But it makes it really hard for me to ask for help, especially when I'm suffering, because I want to be able to think that I can do this, like I can manage this. I can deal with this myself. I don't need help. And sometimes I think that is why the Lord has allowed me to endure physical suffering and things like infertility, which I cannot fix. And I'll stand here and tell you today, I'm 42. I have never once conceived a child. I'm 42, and that ship's pretty much sailed. So I'm speaking to you from a position of prayers that God did not answer in the way that I hoped he would. Living with the disease for going on 14 years now. So 2021, crippling pain. And our church had put together an activity. We were going to go rake yards for all the widows and shut-ins. It's an activity we do every year, and I could not walk. And I had not told anyone that I was struggling so much because I don't do that. And so I'm at home in massive amounts of pain, and I'm afraid that people are going to judge me for not coming to the leaf raking event. And one of my friends from church, her name's Lisa, she goes to my Bible study, and she, she called me on a Friday, and she said, she had some questions about the project, and I said, Lisa, I cannot come. Like, I cannot walk, let alone hold a rake. And she said, well, what's going on? So I told her, and, you know, I tried to gloss it over, and she stopped me short, and she said, Glenna, why would you not tell your church? Like, we are your family, and how can we help you bear your burdens and walk through, you and walk through your suffering with you if you do not tell us? You are not to be a Christian on your own. And I remember just feeling like this wash of shame come over me. But I realized that she was telling me this because she loves me. And I said, you know what? You are absolutely right. So that was a Friday. The leaf raking was on Saturday. I did not go. On Sunday, I was at church. We have, because we're a small church, we have a corporate prayer time where one of our elders gets up and takes requests from the floor. It's a little dicey sometimes, but... He then prays for every request, and it takes like 20 minutes of our service every week, and I got to tell you, I hope we never lose it. I don't like to request prayer during that time because I am prideful, and I like to think that I can do things on my own, and I don't want to appear like I am looking for attention and things like that, which is why I had not asked for prayer at that point. But I'm sitting in church, we're doing the corporate prayer time, and my friend Lisa's sitting like two rows behind me. And I could hear her correction in my mind. 
I cannot endure suffering alone because I'm not supposed to, because God has given me the church to help me bear up under suffering, to rejoice when we're rejoicing, to weep when we're weeping. This is one of the ways that we experience God's presence in suffering is through the encouragement of the body of believers. So I'm sitting there and just very, like, weakly raise my hand. And a pastor calls on me, and I start to share of all of the physical pain that I'm in and how much I'm struggling. And to my utter embarrassment, I just start weeping, (laughs) which is the last thing I wanted to do. In my head, I'm sort of hearing people say, gosh, what a drama queen. She doesn't look sick. There is nothing wrong with her. And gosh, this again? You know, that's what I'm thinking. Do you think that is what I heard? Immediately. I'm going to start crying. Immediately, I hear Lisa behind me, two rows, say, can we pray for her right now? Like, can we lay hands on her and pray for her? Which is what they did. Because we are a laying hands church. It's what we do. And James 5, if anyone is sick, you should call the elders of the church to pray. And my, one of my elders keeps a little bottle of oil in his pocket on Sundays. And he will anoint you, and we will pray, and we will trust God with the results. Sometimes he heals, and sometimes he doesn't. He did not heal me. But I'm going to tell you what he did do. He carried me. Because as soon as the church service was over, person after person after person came up to me. And instead of hearing judgment for voicing my suffering, what I heard was, can I bring you guys dinner so you don't have to cook the next couple of nights? Can I take your kids so you can lay down for a little while? Can I come clean your house for you so you don't have to do it? One lady walked up to me, and and she does this periodically. That was um, two years ago almost. And she comes up to me every couple Sundays, and she just puts her hand on my lower back and just whispers a prayer for me and then just leaves. And what I learned, though God did not remove my suffering from me, And I endured a lot of pain after that season. What he did was use the body of Christ to remind me I am not alone. I should never try to walk through suffering alone. And that he loves me through his people. Because he carried me. Carried me. It is foolishness for me to try to walk through suffering by myself. I cannot do it. And I cannot fix it, and I cannot heal myself, but what I can do is submit to God's ways and his means of perseverance in my life. Though I may live with daily pain, God is with me in it, and he has used his church to heal my heart. I mean, having walked with my church through lots of turmoil years and years ago, he has used this to rebuild my love for the church, to teach me that though we don't always get it right, we are still a family. We are still a body. We are still a building that he is building up for the place of God to dwell. God uses his people to help us endure suffering. That is one of the ways that his presence is an encouragement to us. The good news is, though we are guaranteed to suffer in this life, and if you don't believe me, every New Testament writer talks about the certainty of suffering in this life. I mean, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have troubles. But then he said, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. I mean, we are going to suffer. James says that we will have various trials of various kinds in this life. We're just guaranteed. It's going to happen. And let me just say here, it is not wrong to pray for an end of suffering. 
it is not wrong. I don't want you to, to listen to me and think, well, I should just endure it and never ask the Lord to change it. I, the Psalms are too full of prayers for the Lord to restore and heal and give peace and to comfort. There's too many prayers there for us to say that it's wrong to pray for those things. I pray for healing every day of my life, and I pursue healing. I mean, right now, at this season of, of my life that I'm in, I mean, if you see me at home every other week, I am jamming a needle into my stomach with really dangerous medication in hopes of quieting the pain in my body. I pursue and pray for healing, but I also know that until the Lord does heal me, whether through death or if he does miraculously heal me or heals me through medication, until then, he will not abandon me and he will use this somehow for good in my life. And I still may not understand it. I don't always understand it. I will tell you that I would not be standing here before you today if the Lord had not seen fit for me to suffer. It is the path of suffering that led me to writing and speaking, things I did not see in my future several years ago. And I believe that the Lord does not waste our sorrows. And our sorrows are temporary. There is an expiration date for my physical suffering. Because we are promised that Jesus is returning. And that when he comes... And this is why I love songs about the resurrection. That, that when he returns, the dead in Christ will rise to meet him. A couple of years ago, one of my very best friends passed away from cancer. And I, every now and then, not, not a whole lot, but every now and then I'll go and drive to cemetery where she's buried. And she's facing east. It's this beautiful, like, hillside. There's a park at the bottom of the cemetery. Every now and then, I think about Resurrection Day and that when Jesus returns, my friend Sue is going to pop up out of the earth. And that body that was so wasted away by cancer will be restored. She will have a new body that will never know disease. Because Jesus' resurrection, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And that means that I'm going to die one day if Jesus doesn't return in my lifetime. I'm going to die, and they're going to bury me in the ground. And I've made my husband swear that they will close the casket at the funeral. And they're going to bury me, and one day Jesus is going to return, and he is going to give me a body that never hurts. And I gotta tell you, that is really hard to imagine. I mean, when you live your life around mitigating pain, the resurrection means everything. The hope of Jesus returning and keeping his promise of restoration, restoration is everything to me. If we had no hope in his return and in, in the resurrection, Paul says, we would be the most pitied, basically be lunatics for holding on to worshiping a dead Savior. But Jesus came back to life because he had promises to keep. And one of those promises is the promise of God's presence. He will raise us. He will give us new bodies that will never hurt. He will defeat Satan finally. He will set up a new heavens and a new earth where we will live with him forever. And this is the promise that gets the New Testament Christians through their suffering. Some examples. Um, in James, the book of James, chapter 5. 
James says, you also be patient. He is speaking to suffering Christians. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he wants you to be firm and persevere because Jesus is coming back. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, if we endure, we will reign with Christ. Thank you so much. Um, So this is a promise that if you persevere, you're going to reign with him in heaven. The better days are coming ahead. In 1 Peter 1, Peter is referring to trials that we must endure that will refine our faith and his hope. And he says it like six times in 1 Peter 1. Peter is like, but the resurrection of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, meaning that what gets you through your present trials and suffering is the promise of the coming Christ who will come and set things to right. The the promises of the book of Revelation speak to that coming eternity with God where the promise of God's presence will be fully realized and enjoyed forever. And here's the thing about heaven. It will be free from all of the things that hurt us or make us sad. No disease. No pain. No betrayal. No grief. No loss. No death. No unfulfilled longings, no sin. And we are promised in Revelation 7 that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. According to the Psalms, he has kept track of every tear. The psalmist says he keeps our tears in a bottle. The Lord, he keeps track. He knows of the griefs and the losses that you are experiencing and have experienced. We will have no need in heaven to seek things that will never satisfy us. Our souls will finally feel full satisfaction in the Lord as intended. Paul says in Philippians 3 that God will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. I used to think when I was growing up that heaven would be boring You know, like floating around on clouds, being kind of see-through, harps, that kind of like vision of heaven, which could not be further from the biblical uh, explanations and descriptions of heaven, especially in Revelation. Heaven will not be boring, and if you struggle like I did to believe that heaven's a place where you really want to be for eternity, I want to commend a book to you. Randy Alcorn wrote a book like 20 years ago. I'm really late to the party on this one. It's called Heaven. And he walks through all of scripture and what it speaks to about our place with God in heaven forever. And he answers questions like, will we work in heaven? Will we eat in heaven? Will we sleep in heaven? Will we know people in heaven? Will we remember things on earth? And very importantly, he answers the question of whether or not we will drink coffee in heaven. (laughs) And I am so happy to say that he believes we will. And I'm really happy about that. Uh, He just uses biblical explanations to talk about the restoration of God's creation and the things that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall, before sin inhabited the world. In Revelation, we see this sort of full circle restoration where man is with God and God is with man with this pure, unadulterated access to the presence of God, no sin to get in the way, no suffering to make us doubt him. Remember the tabernacle back in the wilderness that God instructed his people to put up. And this is where his glory and his presence was going to dwell. And then remember in John 1, 
where we're told that Jesus came and tabernacled among his people. Well, John, who wrote John 1, also wrote Revelation, and he uses very similar language to describe heaven. He says in Revelation 7.15, The one seated on the throne of heaven will shelter them. Now that word shelter is the same word from John 1. God will tabernacle with his people. He will be fully, fully present. The city of God will be full of his presence and every believer will have free access to him. I mean, it's full circle. We will not need faith anymore because we will be living by sight at that point. And I long for that day. John goes on in Revelation 21 to say this. He says, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Those words are very similar words to the words that God spoke in Exodus, that I am Yahweh and I am their God and I will live with them and my eyes and my heart will be with them. This is God keeping the same old promises. But here, there is nothing to get in the way, no sin. This is promise kept. Full access to God. There will be, John tells us in, in, again in Revelation 21, there will be no temple in heaven. No tabernacle, no sanctuary, and here's why. I did not see a sanctuary in the city because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. Because he is tabernacling with us. He is giving us free access to his presence. From Genesis to Revelation is a God who promises to be with his people and keeps his promise no matter what. He pursues us with his presence. I was um, studying Psalm 23 a few months back, which is probably the first passage of scripture I memorized as a child. I think I was in kindergarten when I memorized Psalm 23. Of course, I learned it in the King James Version back, back in the 80s. But there is um, a real promise of God's presence in Psalm 23. And I think we get this picture of God's presence, of God keeping this promise in a way that I really missed for a long time. So it starts off, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So you've got this like scene of God is a shepherd and we are the sheep. And we know later from John 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd and that all his sheep recognize his voice. We see Jesus fulfilling that passage. So we're talking about the Lord guiding and comforting us. And then you get to the part about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and the language becomes you and me. It's not just talking about the Lord is my shepherd. It becomes even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know that you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So it becomes this very personal prayer that, Lord, I know I'm going to suffer. And the promise in Psalm 23 isn't that God's going to remove the psalmist from that valley of the shadow of death. That's not what we see. What we see is a God who walks with him through the valley of the shadow of death. And then he goes on to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Talking about how the Lord restores some things in his life and gives him victory. And then the last verse is, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So it doesn't come across great in English. Goodness and mercy will follow me. It's like they're trailing behind me, right? In Hebrew, the word 
is pursue, it's chase, it's run after. So you know that song, and I'm really resistant to like trendy songs, so I came to this one really late. But you know that song, um, The Goodness of God? You know, you get to the bridge, um, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. You know that part? This is Psalm 23, 6. This is your goodness is running after me. This is Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. This is God chasing us with his presence, pursuing us with his goodness, encircling us with himself. These are old promises that we see fulfilled throughout the story of Scripture and then finalized in heaven, fully realized, presence forever, the absence of sorrows and the presence of God. This is a God who was promised from day one to be with his people and love them through his presence, and this is a God who has kept that promise every day since then. And he will continue to keep that promise because that is who he is. He is a promise keeper. And so as you walk through suffering in this life, he may not end your trial. He may not remove your suffering when you want him to, but he will be with you in it and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever one day. There is an end date to your suffering. And until that date, the Lord is with you in it. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. Our present sufferings in this life are preparing for us in eternal glory. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, and as someone who struggles with physical ailments, I really get that. My outer self feels like it's wasting away all the time. And the older I get, I also feel the physical signs of aging and feel myself wasting away a little bit by little bit. But then he says, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. God is doing good work in your heart through your suffering. You may not be able to see it, but he is preparing for you eternity with him forever. Sometimes he uses suffering in a weird way to bless us, to help us feel less at home in this earth, and to set our hearts on eternity. Because we are often too at home in this world. And our feet are buried too deeply in culture and entertainment and things that amuse us and waste our time. And sometimes he will use suffering to keep us anchored in him and looking towards that promise of Christ's return. I don't want to have a physical disease, but I got to tell you, nothing has made me long for resurrection day like a physical disease. The Lord can use suffering to show you what matters in this life. To sort of loosen the ties of this world. We like to say that the blessing and suffering is the ending of it, and in heaven it will be. But in this life, the blessing isn't always the removal of suffering. In James 5, James says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Sometimes the blessing is the perseverance in it. It is holding on and believing that God will keep his promise to be with you, 
even as he tells you no to things that you pray, even as you walk through pain and grief and loss. If he uses suffering to draw you closer to him, then that is the gift that he is giving you. You can still pray for an end to it. You can pray for relief. I do. But in the meantime, rather than relentlessly pursuing whatever it is we think we need to be happy, submit yourself to God's plans for your life in the meantime. Trust that he is preparing you for eternity with him. Trust that the true and better life is coming next, that this is not all there is, that there is an expiration date to your suffering. I began our first session talking about how suffering and unanswered prayers sent me to the word to understand how God could be good and withholding good things from me and not giving me physical healing and not giving us a successful ministry for all of those years. But as I searched the scripture, I saw that God is always good because he is always present. And he is good when things go my way and he is good when things don't go my way. It is his nature to be good and his goodness is often expressed through his presence with me. His goodness doesn't change with my circumstances. He is as good to me today as he was that day years ago, as he was when I, on the day I was born. He is always good and always faithful. If he says no to good desires, it will be because he has something else in store for you that will make you like Jesus and draw you near to him. If he uses your suffering to keep you close to him, to understand that his presence is the gift that you need, then you can endure because he is with you and he loves you and he is coming again and one day he will make all things new. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gifts that you have given us, your word, free access to you through prayer, the body of believers to help us walk, to carry our burdens with us, to weep when we were weeping, rejoice when we were rejoicing. Lord, I thank you that you have not left us here to strive and try to figure out how to be faithful and how to walk with you when life is hard, but you have given us everything that we need. That your son upholds the universe by the word of his power, which means that he upholds the universe and our life circumstances that there is nothing in our lives beyond his control, so we can trust ourselves, entrust ourselves to you. On the good days, on the hard days, you are always good, you are always present, and you have loved us by chasing us with your love and your goodness and your presence. We thank you, Lord, for being a God who made promises and always, always keeps them. In Jesus' name, amen.